Winning in Asia is never simple or easy. It takes determination and agility. Find out how some companies get tripped up, while others make incredible profits. This is Winning in Asia. Hello, everybody. I'm your host Michael J. Dunn, and this is Winning in Asia. Now, this week, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to talk about one of my favorite historical figures when it comes to understanding Asia, getting Asia. Look no further than poet, author, really an extraordinary historical figure, Rudyard Kipling. Now, Kipling wrote, of course, The Jungle Book, a favorite of kids, and he also wrote the poem If, a classic. But the one line that really stays with me when I think of Kipling is when he talks about Asia. He wrote, keep in mind, that was over a hundred years ago. He wrote, Asia will not be tamed by the methods of the West. There is too much Asia and she is too old. (laughs) Now, what did he mean by that? Well, Kipling was telling us that Asia has been around for a long time and the culture runs very deep. They have their own language, their own belief systems, their own religions, their own histories, their own mindsets, perspectives, preferences, value systems, you name it. And up and down the line, pretty much totally different from what we know in the West. So why is that important? Because companies that step into the Asian arena to compete either understand those differences and adjust to them or they don't. The ones that do compete, thrive, make profits and grow and attract great talent and have great stories to tell. The companies that don't make the adjustments, well, yeah, they crash out, fall by the wayside. That's the scoreboard of what happens when Western companies go to Asia. Kipling said it 100 years ago. It's still true today. Well, I'm really happy to introduce our guest today, my good friend, Shah Faruzi. Shah is the chairman and founder of the PAC Group, a global engineering company that does, well, does work for all the OEMs in every time zone. Hugely successful company. And for me, beyond the talent and expertise, what really is the secret of Shah's success is his ability to connect with people in so many different cultures. And at the core of that connection is an understanding that the person sitting across from you should command the same kind of respect that you yourself hope to receive. Shah was born in Iran, raised in Michigan, and now runs a global company. How did he get it done? We'll learn more about Shah and the PAC group and changes underway in Asia coming up next on Winning in Asia. Hello, Shah. Hello, Michael. Pleasure to see you again. Yes, thank you for joining us on Winning in Asia. You first started getting things going in China around 1994. Since then, you've built the PAC group into a global company with operations in virtually every time zone. You know, the sun never sets on the PAC group, to borrow the expression. So today, before we get into the meat and potatoes of our conversation, I really wanted to do something a little bit different and engage you in a sort of lightning round Q&A, Twitter style, where I ask a series of short questions. And then you respond with equally short answers, preferably, you know, something in the range of five to seven words. This will give listeners an opportunity to get to know you and also soak in a lot of your global experiences. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here we go. What is your favorite city in Asia? My favorite city in Asia has got to be Shanghai. Shanghai, good. What, in your view, is the best state in America? Best state in America? I would say Michigan. Michigan. Okay. You're, you're a Michigan man. So am I. How many times have you flown across the Pacific? Oh God, that's a difficult one. <laughs> Give us a ballpark. Let's see. 30 years, uh, average of minimum five times a year. 
Let's just go with 150. Just 150 in- times across the Pacific. Which airline offers the best service? You spent so much time in the air. What, who's number one? Collectively, I would say Lufthansa. And um, uh, if you look at their operation globally, I'm very pleased with Lufthansa. They've always done well for me. Solid, consistent, no surprises. There are some other companies that are better in some regions, Emirates mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. But... Uh, because I do a lot of Star Alliance, so Lufthansa. For Lufthansa, me. good. What was your first car? Oh my God, it was a Dodge Chrysler push button. I bought for $150. I had a hole in the floor of it. <laughs> Wait, $150? That's beautiful. Yeah. That was 1972. All right. You're out to dinner with friends. Is it Italian, French, Greek, Japanese, or something else? Italian and Japanese. Italian and Japanese. Okay. Yeah. Um, what languages do you speak, Shah? I speak English and Farsi, which is my native language. I can get by in German, Portuguese, and Chinese, but only to the point of getting by in a restaurant or commuting and no business language. Farsi is Iran, right? Right. That's where I'm from. You were born there? Yes. Okay. And uh, English, Farsi, and then the others were German, Chinese, and? Portuguese. Portuguese. So that's Brazil. Correct. Okay. In your view, you've done business all over the world. Which country has the toughest negotiators? Toughest negotiators, I would say India, because of lack of clarity when you're negotiating. Ah. China, at least you know what the game plan is. In India, you never know what the game plan is. One of the reasons is there's such a polite society that they don't tell you no. So you don't know how long you've been, you know. Strung along. You might be strung along for a long time. It's all polite and smiles, but you just don't know. And variables, perhaps because I've lived in China longer than I have lived in India. I would say India. Who's number two? I've had good time with Pakistanis. I've had good time with Thai people. Great time with Japanese negotiating, no issues there. Okay, good. So we're going to put India at the top of the list. Are you an iPhone person or an Android person? I am iPhone by force of my family, my children. (laughs) You had no choice, huh? Yeah, they were complaining about inconsistency in our equipment. So they brought me into iPhone many years ago and I stayed. What gave you the idea to go to China for the first time in 1994? It's a big question, but we're shooting for five to seven words, if possible. It's very simple. Demand by the customer. Ford Motor Company came up to us, said they want to launch a joint venture in China to make a small glass factory, and they wanted us to provide project management. And we jumped on it. Perfect. So the demand's there. You followed your customer into China. That was 94, just as the country was about to take off. Back to cars for a moment. What car do you drive now? Oh, boy. You really want to know? Yes. I've got a Bentley GT. I've got a Mustang. I've got a Maserati. I've got a Land Rover that's on the U.S. side. China, I got a Mercedes. And in Brazil, I've got a Dodge. Is there an electric car in your future? No. No electric? No. Because? I enjoy the sound and the performance of my combustion engine. I've got 570 horsepower in my GT and 420 in my Mustang. And I'm not exchanging that for, even though electric vehicles outperform in terms of speed, but it's not the same for us old school people. You love that sound. And I love manual transmission. So I'm one of those strange guys. Old school. Love it. All right. Two more questions. One is you mentioned your family sort of decided iPhone for you. Kids? I have four, three girls and one son. One is in Nicaragua. One is in Shanghai. One is in California, and one is in Mexico City. Okay, so they're taking after after you, going global, baby. They've got more miles than I do sometimes, I think. (laughs) 
All right, last question. Prediction, COVID-19 battle. Will we win it or sort of prevail over it in 2020, 2021, or it's still too soon to tell? I think from a medical standpoint, from a health standpoint, 2021, we will conquer it and we'll put it behind us in a manageable way. Just kind of was faded away by 2022, 2023. Economically, I think we got four years to get back to where we were last year. Whoa, four years. Everyone I've talked to, everything I've seen, indicates that this slow return is one thing, but the consumer attitude is another thing. Mm-hmm. That confidence. Consumer confidence in careless suspending is going to be a few years away. And um, I think the banks, in terms of credit availability for people to spend like that, is going to get tighter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think all of those will mean a slower getting back. This is a totality statement, okay? Some states and some countries will recover faster. Some will actually may do better. Who knows? If India gets their act together, they may do better. Mm-hmm. Mexico may do better. But you asked me a holistic question as in total global point of view of that. And unfortunately, I always think total global point of view instead of domestically. So I think it's going to be two to four years. Two to four years. That sounds like a realistic take, not a hopeful one, a realistic take based on, well, we are in a once in a hundred year phenomenon. And the last time something like this happened, it wasn't done in a short period of time. It took years to recover. This is really good stuff, Shah. Really good. Thank you. We're going to continue talking about the impact of COVID. You know, I was thinking before we got on the line today that it's been about 16 weeks since that initial lockdown in Wuhan. It seems so long ago, so far away. Fast forward to today, it's, we're facing a global pandemic. What are you seeing? What are the biggest changes that you've witnessed or are you feeling as this virus has spread globally? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, putting aside for a minute the human element aspect of it and impact of it on our health, mental health, physical health, et cetera, and looking at it purely from a business standpoint, I think this period acted as an accelerator. Hmm. And I explained that in the following way. It gave us a time to think and reflect on what we we're doing. We have been on a automatic mode of run to China. And everybody ran to China. We went to China in 1994. Everybody else came since or during and after. And it's for the first time perhaps in our history that economically, we voluntarily put so much into one basket. After World War II, people looked to U.S. because they had to, not because it was lower price or because... But China became something that it was almost like automatic. Everybody wanted to be there. Everybody went there and nobody questioned, what is this taking us? There was no question. It was the place to be, whether you wanted to sell, manufacture, export. It was hot. And for good reasons. It proved to be a great market. It was a country in need of goods and products and services. It created a lot of wealth for a lot of countries around the world. Germany benefited from selling all the toolings and everything else, and U.S. invested in there and benefited from it. So it was not a mistake. It was, it was absolutely the right thing to do at the right time. But we never stopped and think, where is this going? I think this period of time made people stand back and think, once we go back or once we come out of this situation, are we going to do the same thing over and over again? Now, moving away from China is not something that 
I don't believe coronavirus or COVID-19 is going to be the driving factor in businesses leaving China. In fact, uh, Shanghai American Chamber of Commerce just did a study and only a few companies said that they're going to reinvest or invest elsewhere than China because of COVID-19. But it is something that's adding to what was already a concern in that how much do we want to have in one country? Preceding that, of course, the U.S. China trade had brought that into a highlight. Preceding that, increased labor costs, inefficiencies, IP issues, and everything else in China raised the question, but nobody made any decisions. Everybody knew the question, how much longer are we going to do this? But everybody said, it's working, don't mess with it. It's like this pendulum that's moving in one direction, and everybody follows it until the pendulum starts slowing down, and people start questioning it. So I think the biggest impact for my company as well is that in the past few weeks, we've been thinking, are we doing the right thing? Are we in the right place? And um, as an example, we have decided we're going to reinvest and refocus a lot more on our Mexico and Vietnam operation. Vietnam and Mexico. Exactly. We are re- mm-hmm. reinvesting and refocusing a lot more in those two markets as regions. And um, we are also seeing our clients doing the same thing. I think, again, you asked the question as to what was the impact of COVID-19. I think the impact was it gave the world a little bit of time to think. And as you know, we all have had some time on our hand because we're not traveling, we're not meeting. Of course, we're still doing business remotely, but I think most most of us have reflected more on what we're doing. Economically and otherwise, it just doesn't seem to make sense to keep going the same game. Now, having said all of that, I want to be very clear. China will remain an excellent market, a great market, and it will grow and it will provide opportunities. It just won't be the only place that 95% of the people decided to go and invest. You're going to see people that are there stay there. You're going to see uh, local businesses grow. You're going to see the local economy grow. Maybe not 8%, maybe at 4 or 5%, maybe this year at 3%. But we all know how China calculates GDP growth. So who knows what the published number would be. But it certainly will not be the same as the last couple of years. And the rate of growth in the future may not be as much, at least not because of foreign investment. Now, remember, China is so big and is so underdeveloped, so many parts of it, that in itself, it can create and sustain a growth. But when it comes to foreign investment, foreign businesses running to China, we're going to see less of it. It does not mean we're not going to see it anymore. That's a great way of thinking of it. You know, for so many years, it was just autopilot. Where do you go? You go to China. And a couple of weeks ago when we spoke, you introduced a new term to me, You said PRC. Of course, you hear the letters PRC, People's Republic of China, but you had a new definition for it. Yes. Partially repatriating from China. Mm -hmm. What's important to understand here is partial and it's repatriating, meaning trying to take some of that business and investment elsewhere to mitigate possibility of risks that exist. Those risks were compounded with the trade, as well as labor costs, as well as labor availability, as well as increasing material costs, and then compounded with COVID-19 situation that made everybody kind of look to say, it is possible to be in trouble if you got too many eggs in China. And today, and for a long time to come, we all want to have certain level of presence and contribution to development of China and vice versa. China is technologically going to have a lot of new material technology that they will develop. I even heard, and I cannot confirm this, that for the first time, China filed more patent than U.S. 
I mean, the future China will be a player, but it won't be the that black hole in the grab in, in universe that sucked everything in. It seems like among those other countries, Vietnam has really sort of become the darling of investors recently. It's almost like a junior version of, of China. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience in Vietnam? What makes it so attractive? A couple of things about Vietnam. One thing is that uh, there are no roses without thorns, okay? Uh -huh. so, <laughs> Vietnam is not ripe. And I think Vietnam is getting caught by surprise about the attention they're about to receive. If they're not careful, they may not be as prepared as China was when China decided to go. For example, the infrastructural development that China invested in was an enabler to have more factories to come in and more investors to come in because you could go to Suzhou, you could go to Guangzhou, you could go to Shenzhen, you could go anywhere and have mass transportation. So I think Vietnam has, has, has challenges that they face. If you do your little checklist of things to look at, Vietnam will come out good in some areas, but in many areas, they won't come out good. Availability of trained engineers and technical resources, organization of government to train resources, uh, we met with some of the government officials in, in Vietnam. We asked him what are the programs for developing and training and investing in small business development. And we were surprised to see how limited they are. Those that supporting was, industries simply are not there, at least not there yet in Vietnam. And the bad news is, at least so far as our investigation shows, Vietnam needs to invest more and pay more attention to development of these fundamental enablers, whether it's a highway infrastructure, whether it's a small business development, whether it's trained workforce that they have to invest in. So if the rate of reinvestment or investment in Vietnam goes at the level that I am guessing it has the potential, mm -hmm. I think Vietnam is going to choke unless they really change and they start getting ready for it. And if they do, they will receive their fair share of it. They have good economy. They have stability and security. You know, businesses love stability. Whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a kingdom, whether you're a dictator, stability is good for business. When I am in Vietnam, as you know, we have operations in Vietnam right now. You see that energy and enthusiasm and drive. However, the things that they like, even in China, as you well know, they made such a big investment to make sure every. Now, a lot of people speak English in the key areas of the country. And I remember when Olympic was coming in, the number of taxi drivers that were mandated to be able to speak English and taxis that were marked as English-speaking drivers. What other country does that? Yeah, that, that was things, phenomenal. Yeah, those things take government active participation. Vietnam, very similar to China, has a system that single government decides and the whole nation follows. That's mm -hmm. a plus that India doesn't have to their disadvantage. So Vietnam has got some of the elements of success. Mexico, on the other hand, has the biggest element of success. And that is its proximity to US and NAFTA, which after some small modification for political or for economic reason, depending on your point of view, is finding back in place. So Mexico, on the other hand, has a tremendous attraction and that is access to US market. Mexico suffers from lack of skilled trained Resources, the number of college graduates are not sufficient. Hopefully the government will do something about that. But it does have a great infrastructure, roads and highways to U.S. So they have advantages and they all deserve the businesses. I think U.S. needs to really rethink its strategy about Mexico. I think I'm one of those people that believes Mexico is one of the greatest opportunities underutilized by U.S. In my opinion, the answer is create more jobs there. The more jobs you create, 
The more opportunity the U.S. creates in Mexico, the more it leads to safety and comfort and benefit of the U.S. So much went to China. If a fraction of that had gone to Mexico, how would our world be different today? Would we be building a wall? Everybody would be so much better off. And you know what you're reminding me of is the Chinese themselves are now coming out of China, going global, and including to Mexico. I think that, by the way, that's going to be the bigger chunk of investment in countries like Vietnam and Mexico than just international companies investing. I think Chinese have a lot of money and resources in their business, but the growth of the business there is a slowing down. Take the, take the automotive, for instance. 34 to 40 million vehicle capacity by some estimate. Whose estimate you believe? Yes, 40 million. And, and this year we could land on 20 million in terms of production and sales. So operating well, at about half capacity. That kind of growth. If you look at where they went in the past 15 years, for companies, you know, the old saying, you either grow, you die. That's the nature of the business. You don't stay steady. And uh, so, so for these companies to grow, they're going to have to grow through not just export, but through globalization. So we're going to see a lot of Chinese companies coming out. Now, China does control the foreign investment. If you can have a lot of money in China, you can't take it out and invest in some of the countries that easily, unless it's approved by the government. Sometimes you can question why would a car company out of Beijing go to South Africa and build a big plant over there? Was that strategic or was that political? You can debate that any way you want to. Chinese have a lot to learn on how to go global. Which for even the largest and most successful Chinese company, that's new territory. You're talking next five, 10 years, look for massive Chinese successful companies to start going abroad. And when they do so, they'll need to find ways to well, when in Rome, do as the Romans, to, to integrate, to, to adjust to new territory. That's where opportunity comes in for, for Americans and for Europeans to make that easier. One of the things that's in common is whether you're going into China or being on the receiving end of Chinese going global, it's really important to know how to connect or operate or understand your counterpart, your Chinese counterpart. You've been there since the early 90s. You've seen so much happen what would you say, and this is something we like to do on the show here on Winning in Asia, is what are the most common mistakes, not intentional, but most common mistakes that American companies, American people make when they step in, either step into China or initiate a business relationship with a Chinese company? What, what do they get wrong? It's not unique to Americans. The risk factors are different. The, the way Chinese assess the risks in some key areas are different then the way, as you said, an American company would assess risk. Example? Um, American companies, it's return on investment. I mean, if return on investment works, you're good. We did our job. We made a return. Maybe mm -hmm. not always good, but it counts for 80% of the decision-making process. When I talk to Chinese executives as they look at overseas, number one is fear of legal issues understanding the law and the contract laws and being subject to lawsuits and underlining that is believing that they will not be treated fair if there was a dispute. This is the exact words of the, what I hear from executives is that if we are sued in the U.S., we will not get a fair judgment because we're deemed as Chinese deep pocket and they won't bat an eye to give big awards against us. That's number one. Mm -hmm. The issue is labor relationship. They're very concerned about labor relationship uh, as they go overseas. Obviously, Chinese company in China can manage many of these issues very comfortably. Be because they're comfortable with hierarchies, in my experience. You, yes. The orders come, come down from on high and everybody aligns. 
and gets the work done. Things are changing in China. You can be sued for patents. You cannot be lab- labor can sue the employers now in China. But one of the other areas they're concerned about is how do I deal with employees and labor? Now, as you well know, Mexico has a fantastic answer for this. The shelter companies in Mexico are fabulous ideas. And I think that's one of the things that's going to lead to more Chinese people going to Mexico is this concept of shelter company, whereby mm. you can basically send your equipment there Never file a company, never have a legal presence there. They'll take your equipment. They'll provide the workforce. You just pay for the labor hours. You send all your supervisors, executives, and quality control people into the plant. They work there. You make the products and you export it to the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere. And you have no presence in Mexico. You're going to never be sued there. That is fascinating. This is the first I've heard of this shop. And it makes all kinds of sense for all kinds of reasons. You don't pay Mm -hmm. export tax, nothing. Your goods come in. Your equipment is you owned by you on consignment to the shelter company. The guy provides you the workforce. You don't like the guy, you fire him the next day because you don't work for you. They work for this other company. But if you quality supervisor said this guy is not doing a good job, he's fired. And the company has to deal with it. The shelter company has to deal with that person. And the shelter company usually employs something like 10, 12,000 people. So they'll train this guy to another job and send him to another project. Now, the shelter company's own, is it Mexican-owned typically? Uh, yes. All right. So you've got a contractor in Mexico's taking on that risk or, or eliminating the risk because the Chinese aren't in the picture. There uh, are shelter companies in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And there are usually land developers that got into this business. So when you come in, they give you their building on a five-year lease. So you they lease their building for you. And they give you an option to buy after three years or so. I think Mexican government just extended that to 10 years. Uh, in other words, you can come into a country as a, as a shelter company. And I think before it was limited to five years, but now they extend it to 10 years. You can operate as a shelter company for up to 10 years, but if you're still there after 10 years, they want you to have a legal presence. But mm-hmm. that's off a soft landing. Oh yeah. And so that's something the Chinese guy looks at and says, look, I don't have to pay for the land. I don't have to worry about the legal issues. I can try out the market. If I'm not successful, I will leave. So those are some of the issues. The other issues, not knowing how to adapt to the local market demands. I have one ex- specific example right now. I will not mention the name of the company, but they literally went to a country and invested and built the plant. They're building the product. It's not selling. And now they're asking for, can you give us some benchmark knowledge of the local market, what they want to buy? What attributes are they looking for in their vehicles? What vehicles are selling better and why? What's the, it's like, it's like, wait, wait, you came here, you built, you produced, and then you're asking what? Those are the kind of things that, of course, in China, as you well know, again, they bought whatever you built. Yes, they were spoiled. And now now they're going to other markets. They're losing some of their advantages because when they go to another market, it's not just price. So, so I think some of the things that Chinese see as risk is their the lack of knowledge of local market. And remember, Americans went to China with the concept of building what sells in America and Chinese will buy it because it's cheaper than the import. When Chinese go to another country, they're not building something as a substitute for import. They're trying to sell something to compete with other international companies. Maybe this helps us understand, for example, why, you know, since the early 2000s, Chinese auto companies have been saying that they're coming to the United States. Many of them made preparations, got the product homologized, did the regulatory benchmarking, but didn't pull the trigger. Because maybe at a certain moment, they said there's too much risk here. We're, we're not following through. Now, you've worked with so many Chinese companies with all the OEMs, parts makers, as they've gone global. And there's this sort of lingering fear 
of doing business with the Chinese that one way or another, the Chinese are so good at negotiating that it'll be tough to make money with Chinese companies. Is that accurate? Is that true? Or can companies actually count on getting into business with a Chinese partner and making money steadily over the long term? Well, we've made money working with Chinese. We've made good money working with Chinese. Frankly speaking, we have less problem collecting money from Chinese than we have non-Chinese companies. That is fascinating. And is that based on your, your relationships? What's the key there? Actually, it's not that complicated. Chinese don't believe in not paying. They may not agree to pay a lot. Especially they may China. not agree to pay a lot. They may delay. But ultimately, in my own experience, they always recognize that they owe and they do pay. That's, that's been our experience. Mm-hmm. And um, when you talk about Chinese companies, you got to predefine what you're talking about. You're talking about privately held entrepreneur, private investment companies. Are you talking mm-hmm. about own enterprises? Are you talking about joint ventures, which... The Chinese side, those joint ventures, the behavior patterns are different because of the, um, the cultural differences. But overall, I think a lot of these phrases, if I may, are old. Mm-hmm. That world has changed. Believe it or not, I had somebody ask me last year, Chinese have really money to buy luxury cars? <laughs> <laughs> right. Where do you start? By the way, they, they buy twice as many as Americans do. Every if, single year. If you think you know China, you may want to check that again and change your paradigms. They're not looking for somebody to something to buy only. They're looking for partners. And their definition of partners are different than the GMO definition of our suppliers that are partner. I mean, that was the biggest joke around. <laughs> right. Partners at the first quarter of the year, suppliers at the second quarter, and by the end of the year, a vendor. That's so the old saying, right? <laughs> they need you as their advisors and their partner to share their pain because they're walking into an unknown territory that's a high risk to them. So that's fascinating. I think given a choice, most Western companies going into Asian markets would prefer to own 100%. They, they also perceive risk, but it just feels comfortable to control the whole thing. What I'm hearing you saying is as the Chinese go abroad, they're relatively more open to partnerships, joint ventures. So far, that's not been the case, though. If you look at since 2005, now... $2 trillion China has invested overseas. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. has received $183 billion of that money. I, I believe the number is somewhere $180 billion has been invested in the U.S. by Chinese. But that's been all acquisition. But that is not part of globalization. Acquisitions have been, you know, in particular after the 2009-2010 global financial crisis, I'm aware that the Chinese bought a lot of auto parts makers and tech companies that were under duress at the time. So that made sense. So their first option would be to, to acquire, and the second option would be if, they, if they're coming themselves, then work with a partner. Those options, the rate of those option changes as time goes on. Initially, acquisition, acquisition, a full acquisition, and not partnership. I mm-hmm. think as time goes on, and as the big numbers stop, and we get to smaller size companies, uh, we're going to see a Chinese guy wanting to make partner with somebody in Mexico that also makes air conditioning and make the parts together and sell them. So the big companies that you're talking about, the companies that bought like Delphi or portion of uh, Vistion or portion of uh, big companies, IAC, et cetera. So those, those are big investments. Look, GM doesn't have to be a 50-50 partner with SAIC anymore, do they? No. But they stay, right? Yes. I was thinking earlier before we connected today, good friend of ours, both of ours, Phil Murtaugh, before I met you, Shah, I was talking to Phil and he said, you got to meet this guy, Shah. I said, yeah. He goes, this guy, you know what he does? He gets things done. He just gets things done. He 
He said, if I went to Shaw tomorrow and said, I need to build a nuclear power plant next month in uh, Uzbekistan, Shaw would go, yeah, we got this. No problem. We'll take it on and we'll deliver. So that's your reputation, which is phenomenal. Really a strong reputation for well, delivery. He's very kind to say that. He's a very kind gentleman. And by the way, that example was not incorrect. They did ask us to go to Uzbekistan and build their engine plant. <laughs> okay. We did go to Uzbekistan. And we did manage the engine plant in Uzbekistan. And it was probably the only single source contract I've ever had with GM. It was basically like nobody else we can't send over there. You're going. <laughs> you work all over the world. Your company has offices in every time zone. And you've been just tremendously successful. In part, I feel, I feel because you connect so well with people, no matter where you are. Do you have a personal creed uh, philosophy that really is the design behind your, your success? What would that be? I'm not sure, but I can tell you what um, Mr. Chen Hong said to me one time. Chen mm-hmm. Hong, CEO of uh, SGMW Wuling, and still is. And uh, one day he called me in his office and he said, in China, we've never seen somebody like you who has Japanese working for him, Koreans working for him, hmm. Americans working for him, Chinese working for him. And on our project, we were doing at that time the body shop and the paint shop with him. He says, you got all these different cultural people working together on one project. How did you do it? I, I think, I don't know, maybe some of that has to do with my Iranian background, being from Middle East and all that. I think respecting people and, and knowing that everybody from everywhere in the world um, deserves to be respected mm. and deserves to be understood. And no matter what you think you understand, you need to be open-minded with people and be willing to listen to their different ideas and different ways of doing business. But the challenge is how to connect people with different ways of doing things to cohesively work together. And probably one of my biggest challenges in a company, which I personally enforce quite a bit, is communication between executives from different parts of our world. Not to digress too much, but I was at Chioda headquarters, and Chioda was a, is a $3 billion oil company, and they had a division that was automotive, and they were having difficulty getting their automotive division expanded globally. And they asked me, they said, you're a small little guy with no money, a small company, but you are working in all these different countries. What's the secret to your success versus ours? Um, I said, well, it's very simple. Put your executive management team chart on the screen right now. And I said, do you see anybody that's non-Japanese on that chart? <laughs> uh-huh. I said, let me show you mine. This guy's Brazilian. That guy is Russian. He's Indian. He's German. And this other guy is Korean. And this other guy is from Australia. And they run their different operations around the world. Which one of us is really global? I said, you're an exporter. Ultimately, they're an exporter. That's right. That's a great way of putting it. Mm -hmm. You export to wherever the need is. You will never take roots in any country. I don't know. I I think think, uh, it's something I enjoy. I enjoy people. Uh, A related question, Shah. Your good friend from college days calls you up and said they just got an assignment to go to Asia to, let's say, let's say they're going to China to run a, a parts company there. Three words of advice. What would they be? My first point of advice to him would be spend as much time as you can in understanding people. And there are cultural training courses. There are language training courses. That's number one. Number Mm. two, look at your partner as though you were looking at yourself. Treat them the way you wanted to be treated. I have seen so many executives from Western companies come to China and want to be treated with such a respect 
but they never reciprocated and treated their counterpart with the same respect. And sometimes it's because a director from U.S. would be a guy with 35 years of experience and a director from China would have only five years of experience. Mm. And the person would misinterpret that difference in age as difference in level of respect or seniority, etc. So I think treating your counterpart over there and the people that work for you with as much respect as you respect to receive yourself. One of the mistakes I made when I went to China, it took me the first 10 years. I only assumed I was going to be there one year, only one year. Had I known that I was going to be there that many years, I would have done some things differently. So I think if you're going there, you may want to start thinking that there's a possibility that you may be staying there longer and do some of the things that you would do in order to, to make your life more localized. Your personal life impacts how you work and your success at work. And the sooner you kind of stabilize your personal life there, the more you're successful you will be in your, in your work. These are all three personal advices, not corporate advices. Mm -hmm. But they go together. You integrate with the society. You get to know how it works. You respect the people you're connecting with. And then everything else flows from that. Business will follow. And I think the Asians do a really good job of establishing relationships first and having business follow. Whereas often we will want to establish the business terms first and hope, yeah, let's go for drinks later on. There's a simple test you can ask yourself. After you've been there for three months, ask yourself, how many times have you been invited by your local team to go out to dinner with them or have a drink with them? If the answer is none, you got a big problem. <laughs> okay, that is a perfect test for everyone to take. And it's easy to measure. How many times have I been invited out by my crew? Zero. Not how, not how many times you took. You know, unbeknown to you, the guy came to you and said, hey, two of us are going out to dinner to a hot pot tonight. You want to join us? then you know that you've made the connection. Well, that's a perfect note upon which to conclude our conversation today, Shah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on Winning in Asia, and I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you again, Shah. Pleasure. Good luck to you and all the best. Thank you. Hey, Shah. Thank you very much. That was a terrific conversation. I learned a lot. Three takeaways, really. First, Chinese companies are going global. Get ready. They're coming. Not just exporting globally. I'm talking about what we learned from Shah is they're actually going into the markets through acquisition, through partnerships. They're coming. And that won't be a short-term turn. That's for the next 20, 30 years. Number two, the pendulum with regards to investment in Asia is definitely on the move. It's swinging. For the last two decades, there was one playbook, and that was for your investments your planning, your aspirations, dreams, your outlook, everything into a single country, the People's Republic of China. Well, for various reasons, that's not working anymore. It's not working as well as it used to. And as a result, global companies are looking for new sources, new markets, new supply chains. And at the top of their list of alternative candidates to China are Vietnam, India, Thailand, Indonesia, and even Mexico. And the third and most important takeaway from my perspective, and we heard it from Shah, is the importance of respect. You know, every Asian language obviously has its own word for respect. In China, they call it zunzhong. In Thailand, it's napte. The Indonesians say hormat. Well, it doesn't matter north, south, east, west, wherever you go in Asia, a real keystone, cornerstone for successful business is the ability to show your counterpart as much respect as you yourself 
would hope to receive. Deliver that respect and there will be reciprocity. They will recognize it, appreciate it, and return it in kind. Bear that in mind and you'll be in good shape on solid ground when you go to build your business in Asia. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining. I'm your host, Michael J. Dunn, and this is Winning in Asia. Thanks for listening to Winning in Asia. Please let us know what you think by leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend. For more information or to connect with Michael Dunn, visit zozogo.com.